Chapter Eleven, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of eighteen ninety six, Part One. As the time for holding the national conventions drew near, both the Republican and the Democratic parties were in a state of feverish anxiety. The free silver agitation had divided both and no one could with confidence predict the effect of this division upon either of them yet the republicans were seemingly in a far better position than the democrats the latter now that president cleveland's guidance had been practically repudiated were without any leadership whatsoever there had as yet arisen no strong dominant personality such as could compel obedience to his will the penoyers and waits and tillmans had often a numerous local following but they were not of the stuff which goes into the making of national leaders on the other hand whatever differences of opinion might divide the republicans on questions of policy there was among them no lack of experienced and able party chiefs to arouse strong popular enthusiasm of these the two who received the most earnest support as candidates for the presidential nomination were mr thomas b reed of maine and mr william mckinley of ohio mr reed's energetic and almost revolutionary course as speaker of the house note one page four sixty five had made him a very conspicuous and striking figure his forceful personality his intellectual acumen his iron will and his effectiveness as a debater gave him a definite title to the highest political preferment he was known to be fairly conservative in his financial views and he was therefore acceptable to the republicans of new england and the middle states but this very fact militated against his candidacy with the party as a whole and especially with the party managers in view of the intense sectional feeling which was then influencing the west the nomination of a new england candidate seemed to many to be politically inexpedient furthermore precisely in proportion to the definiteness of mr reed's financial views was his availability as a harmonizer generally questioned what was sought by the shrewdest politicians in the party was a candidate who should come from a western state who was identified with some other issue than the money question whose record would neither alarm the gold men nor exasperate the friends of silver and who was personally liked by representatives of every faction such an individual was mr mckinley who seemed to be an almost ideal leader from the standpoint of availability in his behalf moreover there were enlisted forces the extent and power of which were not generally recognized in the early months of eighteen ninety six but which were soon to prove quite irresistible mr mckinley was a kindly personage of winning manners and unblemished character he had served in the army during the civil war and had afterwards acquired a wide experience of practical politics and of politicians as a member of congress during that time he had been a strong protectionist and the high tariff act which bore his name and which became law in eighteen ninety had made him known all over the civilized world this measure had in fact led to his own defeat for re-election to the house in the same year and had caused the republican disaster of eighteen ninety note two page four sixty six yet in view of democratic incompetence and the failure of president cleveland's tariff policy there had now come about a strong reaction which was favorable to high protective duties but it was mr mckinley's past and present attitude toward the financial question which made him especially well fitted to succeed in eighteen ninety six in the early part of his congressional career he had been emphatically numbered among the friends of silver he had voted for the bland allison bill on its first passage through the house and he had again voted to enact that measure in disregard of the veto of president hayes 
later in many public speeches he had defended the freer use of silver at the same time his utterances were far from radical and he had recently appeared rather to advocate bimetallism through an international agreement than to approve the policy of letting the united states attempt the dangerous experiment alone note three page four sixty seven therefore mr mckinley while not antagonizing the silver wing of his own party was regarded as a safe man by the gold monometallists his own desire if nominated was to relegate the financial question to an inconspicuous place in the campaign and to fight the battle once more upon the issue of the tariff during four of the years of his absence from congress mr mckinley had been governor of ohio to which office he was elected in eighteen ninety one as governor he had in some respects exposed himself to serious criticism in the second year of his term he had become deeply involved in debt through endorsing the notes of a personal and political friend owing sums which amounted in the aggregate to more than one hundred thousand dollars and having only the modest salary of his office with which to meet the obligation his position was one of great embarrassment in these straits he accepted gifts and loans from several wealthy friends whose names are variously given but who rescued the governor from bankruptcy and secured his lasting friendship a little later men began to censure governor mckinley for his very marked unwillingness to favor any legislative action that interfered with the great corporate interests in the towns and cities the state of ohio was in financial difficulties from insufficiency of revenue that the street railways had never paid an adequate tax upon their earnings was a notorious fact yet all legislative attempts to make them yield a reasonable sum to the state's exchequer were viewed so coldly by the governor as to prevent their passage on the other hand a bill to extend the franchises of these companies from twenty-five to ninety-nine years received his countenance and the persons engaged in the promotion of the measure were permitted to use governor mckinley's executive offices as their headquarters special favors were granted to railway corporations one of which secured from the state a piece of public property for a sum amounting only to one-half of the official valuation very grave scandals were exposed in connection with the penal and charitable institutions of ohio governor mckinley's opponents cited these and other circumstances of a like character as the basis for a charge of neglect of duty if not of actual collusion with persons whose interests were in serious conflict with the interests of the state the financial favors which he had received from wealthy men were significantly mentioned in connection with his alleged unwillingness to interfere with these same men and their friends as corporation officers note four page four sixty nine the implications involved in the recital of these facts so far as they concerned mr mckinley were in the main unjust the governor of ohio has no veto power and therefore can exercise no direct control over proposed legislation many of the abuses brought to light during the years from eighteen ninety one to eighteen ninety five were of earlier origin and were in no way directly connected with the functions of the state executive moreover governor mckinley's personal character was known to be above reproach at the same time his official attitude was undoubtedly marked by a certain passivity with regard to the occurrences already mentioned and it afforded at least a negative support to the measures upon which hostile criticism was so freely lavished mr mckinley entertained a respect amounting almost to reverence for the opinions of a majority his political course was always directed by an anxious desire to be in harmony with the leaders of his party he was not at all the type of statesman who is to be found at the head of a forlorn hope he shaped his conduct and to a great extent his opinions by what he thought to be the wishes and the welfare of his immediate supporters 
being under great personal obligations to a number of men who were rapidly acquiring political power in his state a sense of gratitude no less than a shrewd perception of expediency led him to accept their aid and to find in them his closest friends and chosen monitors among them was a comparatively recent figure in the field of politics whose fame such as it was still remained wholly local though within a few months it was to be almost as widely trumpeted as governor mckinley's own the personality and character of this man deserve a somewhat careful study he is rightly to be regarded less as an individual than as a very accurate exemplification of new and powerful forces which for many years had been acquiring strength but which now for the first time emerged from a half-obscurity and revealed themselves to the nation as laying claim to an almost despotic dominance marcus alonzo hannah or mark hannah as men usually spoke of him was a native of ohio the son of a prosperous wholesale grocer from his father he inherited keen business instincts and a guiding motive which some have called ambition and others greed his early training successfully directed all his exceptional energies towards one definite end to get and to keep he was soon known as a bold and active trader who fought his commercial rivals without giving or asking quarter and without caring whether the means he used were fair or foul so long as he came forth a winner in the struggle his activities were multifarious his energy inexhaustible he dealt in coal and oil and iron and stone he chartered ships he manufactured stoves he bought mining shares and he established banks he even added a newspaper and a theatre to his possessions there was in short no conceivable enterprise or speculation upon which hannah would refuse to enter if only he saw in it the prospect of sufficient gain business with him was warfare and it was warfare à outrance in his commercial strife he presented an analogue not to the duellist nor even to the champion of the prize-ring both of whom are governed by a rigorous code but rather to the savage rough-and-tumble fighter who bites and gouges when body-blows are found to be of no avail moral considerations did not enter into his scheme of life he was a pure materialist respecting nothing but superior force and his sole gospel was the gospel of success having no purely intellectual diversions he long regarded the fierce pursuit of money as both an occupation and a thrilling game only by chance did he discover that there was an even keener pleasure to be found in a still greater game whereof the winner might lay his grasp upon political power this knowledge came to mr hannah after he had tried to add a system of street railways to his already complicated interests and had found that the grant of franchises depended upon the favour of the politicians and so mr hannah purely in the way of business acquired aldermen and local legislatures just as he had previously secured clerks and managers and agents for his other enterprises he felt no scruples as to the means which he employed here again his one criterion was success he was at least no hypocrite he professed no creed save that which he was daily practising he was often brutal but he was wholly frank in his brutality a striking instance of this frankness is afforded in a letter which he wrote in eighteen ninety in that year the attorney-general of ohio mr david k watson had brought suit against the standard oil company for the dissolution of its trust agreement note five page four seventy one hannah had relations with the rockefellers which induced him to interfere with the progress of the suit accordingly he wrote to the attorney-general a personal note in which occurred this memorable sentence you have been in politics long enough to know that no man in public life owes the public anything note six page four seventy two 
such was the cynical view which mr hannah always took of politics both national and local and in practice he lived up to the full measure of its implications he got control of the political machine in the city of cleveland a majority of the councilmen were his agents the mayor was his creature the other officials of the city were obedient to him and to his friends it was not long before the legislature of the state had felt the power of the peculiar influences which hannah exercised and in eighteen ninety one it was hannah more than any other individual who having espoused the cause of mr mckinley in the hour of his congressional defeat had made him governor of ohio but here one must in fairness take into consideration the more personal side of this interesting character since otherwise the man as a whole will not be rightly understood hannah though utterly devoid of even the most rudimentary morality where business was concerned had still a nature that was able to attract and win the liking of his associates he was intensely human though his humanity was that of a primeval man big and strong and coarse he had the primitive instincts developed almost in excess he was frankly appetitive robustly insurient a mass of mighty longings and unconcealed desires it was said of him that every want of his became at once a lust to be sated greedily and in the very moment of its birth not all the lust of the flesh however mastered him in his family relations and as a husband and a father his life was irreproachable yet in the wider sense of the word one may apply to him the striking phrase of a recent english novelist and say that he was as sensual as a mutton-chop he lusted after wealth and got it he lusted after power and he got that also and all through his life his minor appetites were for ever making themselves felt and seen but he was so wholly natural with regard to them his desires were so openly avowed and his enjoyment in their gratification was so hearty and spontaneous as to induce in those who knew him a genuine cordiality the simplicity and even homeliness of his tastes while they often amused were on the whole attractive when he was at the height of his career and had at his command every luxury that wealth could give he used to boast of but one thing and that was of a superior kind of corned beef hash of which he said his cook alone possessed the recipe and whenever he wished to pay the highest possible compliment to a friend he sent him an invitation to a breakfast at which this corned beef hash was served such things as this tickled the fancy of his associates and most men found it hard to think much ill of one who could talk with boyish glee of a treat so innocently plebeian his younger acquaintances used to speak of him as uncle mark and this familiar title affords a clue to the sort of affectionate familiarity which he inspired hannah was in fact of the earth earthy but there was something of the wholesomeness of the earth about him and a stock of manliness as well he spoke out the thing he really thought if he was displeased he grunted and swore but he could be generous and he was afraid of no man mr lincoln stephens tells the story of how hannah once undertook to make a political speech to a crowd of welshmen who had no mind to listen to him every sentence that he spoke was interrupted by their jeers until hannah's blood grew hot there's a lot of american in me he shouted there's some scotch somewhere's way back there's irish blood but by gee blank there's no welsh if there was i'd go down there and lick the whole lot of you this said mr stephens won the welshman and they cheered mark hannah and listened to him willingly while he finished what he had to say note seven page four seventy three 
one of the most marked of hannah's attractively human qualities was the warmth of his personal friendships when he hated he hated with all the strength of his masculinity but he also set no bounds to the ardour of his likings this coarse-fibred man had something of the gentleness of a woman where friendship was concerned and also something of the unrestraint of a child when his confidence had been fully won his cynicism and the hardness of his character seemed to disappear singularly lacking in complexity his emotions in private life were as little controlled as were his appetites in public matters at the success of a friend he would caper clumsily over the bereavement of a friend he would blubber like a schoolboy he had no reverence for any one but he did possess an unusual capacity for affection and there can be no doubt that for mr mckinley his affection was sincere and that it did him honour between the two there existed what it is no exaggeration to call a genuine fondness psychologically this is to be explained as based upon the attraction of opposites for no two men could have been more unlike curiously contrasted indeed were mckinley's suavity and hannah's bluntness mckinley's caution and hannah's courage mckinley's vacillation and hannah's almost insolent tenacity of purpose mckinley respected all of life's conventions hannah hooted at them mckinley believed that the will of the majority was the will of god hannah was sure that majorities could be manufactured and that their will was only the reflection of the far stronger will of the few able men who played upon the motives of human passion and self-interest it is probable that mckinley never really understood mark hannah but there can be no question that hannah rightly understood mckinley and that he admired in him those qualities of which he was himself completely destitute at the close of the st louis convention speaking to a newspaper correspondent hannah burst out with the enthusiastic exclamation i love mckinley he is the best man i ever knew note eight page four seventy five we may be sure that these words and the feeling back of them were entirely sincere the close and intimate friendship between the two men had most important political results their personal liking for each other was strengthened by the consonance of their ambitions mr mckinley desired to be president of the united states mr hannah had set his heart upon becoming one of the two senators from ohio in fighting the battle for his friend hannah was opening up a path to the fulfilment of his own long-cherished hope so successful had he shown himself in making mr mckinley twice governor so keenly practical had been his management of men and of affairs so vast were the resources which he had at his command and so undoubted was his loyalty that to him mr mckinley's political fortunes were unreservedly entrusted in this crucial year of eighteen ninety six whatever the chief republican aspirant for the presidency did or said or wrote was done or said or written only after the approval of mark hannah had been given to it few knew this at the time but it began to be understood as the months wore on though even then and for a long while afterwards the full significance of the fact was only half appreciated what it really meant was that behind the candidacy of a very amiable dignified and upright gentleman there was advancing into a place of almost unlimited power and opportunity a dominant influence which was seriously to modify the character of american public life here in fact one sees the initial appearance of what became to be known as the business man in the highest sphere of national politics for it was as a business man that hannah always described himself politics with him were an adjunct to his business and the esoteric interests of business such as his were for a while to direct the course of american history 
before this time in the united states as in all other nations of the first rank men of wealth had often gained political power and it was frequently their wealth which had enabled them to do so but in general and with most of them wealth was the means and political office was the end again as has already been shown in the course of this narrative wealth has been often wrongly and unscrupulously used for the furtherance of political ambition but in eighteen ninety six a novel phenomenon was exhibited the result of many causes all of which however had tended towards one result now for the first time a party if such it can be called had arisen which was not devoted to any definite political principles at all but rather to the furtherance of private interests that were commercial and financial this party though not recognized as a party was neither democratic nor republican but was the party of wealth consolidated highly organized directed by men of rare ability and using political power no longer as an end but as a means its real object being the private advantage of moneyed men the safeguarding of corporations from legal interference and control and the exploitation of official influence for the benefit of individuals who were unknown to public life all this was implied in the mention of the business man in politics the business man in politics was the capitalist who needed political favors or protection in his business and whether he were nominally a republican or a democrat his allegiance to either party counted as nothing when compared with the sympathetic solidarity of interest which bound him to all other men of the same class the representatives of wealth manufacturers bankers mine-owners railway managers and heads of great financial institutions in general had by this time come to constitute what was in reality another party which did not indeed appear to be such which had no name and which did not hold conventions and openly nominate candidates of its own but which loomed large behind the two older parties endeavouring to play off one against the other and to use indifferently the machinery of each for the esoteric welfare of consolidated wealth the most far-sighted of the men who gave as it were the mot d'ordre to this formidable association had perceived with dread a growing tendency among the american people to expect from the federal government rather than from the states that redress for many a wrong which only far-reaching centralized power could give the particularism of early years was disappearing the old-time doctrine of states rights was fast losing its hold upon the american people republican rule and the arguments of the protectionists had gradually fostered a belief that if the government at washington was to be the source of prosperity so must it also be the fountain-head of justice many events of the preceding decade had stimulated and enhanced the intensity of this feeling but perhaps the most significant of all was the passage of the interstate commerce act the debates over which had revealed the immense powers conferred by the clause in the constitution permitting the government to regulate commerce between the states the particular act in question had as yet imposed no serious check upon the operations of the various trusts but the principle which it had established was pregnant with possibilities of disaster to those corporations which had successfully defied the common law and had found it easy to control the legislative action of individual states a shiver must have passed through many a directorate when congress actually set upon the statute books even an imperfect law invoking so great a power against the lawlessness of wealth president cleveland's vigorous assault upon the overprotection of special industries must likewise have made a deep impression that one attack had practically failed yet another might succeed 
on the whole the temper of the times and a steady drift towards something like state socialism were becoming plain to many and to none more so than to those persons who now came to the surface of affairs bearing the euphemistic name of business men in politics it was because mr hannah was a perfect type of the class which has been described that his personality and his character assumed so much importance it was an unerring instinct which led the cartoonists and caricaturists in the press to draw his likeness and let it symbolize predacious capital and just as mr hannah had formerly got control of the city government of cleveland in order to secure franchises for his street railways so now both he and his associates began a vigorous campaign for the control of the national administration because it too had become essential to the future safety of their business the very audacity of their scheme almost excites one's admiration nor did it necessarily imply the presence of corruption in its grosser forms theirs was a far more scientific game as it was also a far bolder one than that of the old-time purchasers of legislation those who played it kept for the most part within the letter of the law the persons with whom they had to do were no longer the cheaply venal creatures to whom money bribes could be safely offered men of reputation and honour must be influenced and used through what were apparently legitimate rewards but the effect upon american life both public and private of the entrance of this new caste or party was deplorable in that it meant the enervation of civic morality and the exaltation of social ideals that were debasing during the early months of eighteen ninety six mr hannah as the chief mckinley manager undertook a very difficult role the republicans in the eastern states were almost solidly in favor of maintaining the gold standard and of establishing it by law in most of the western states on the other hand the party was honeycombed by what was styled the silver heresy the money question was forcing its way insistently to the front and demanding a solution neither element of the party must be repelled a majority of the delegates from both sections of the country must cast their votes for mr mckinley in order to secure his nomination and make his election possible mr hannah's management was masterly and revealed a rare genius for political strategy above and beyond his already well-known shrewdness courage and resourcefulness he now exhibited a rare discretion and a diplomatic taciturnity which few had ever thought this rough impulsive person to possess the story of how mr hannah brought about the nomination of mckinley has never yet been fully told his course at the time was utterly misunderstood a reading of the contemporary newspapers will serve to show that even the surface facts were ludicrously misrepresented the narrative that is now to be set forth is that which mr hannah himself was afterwards wont to tell in private conversation and it is in complete accord with all the circumstances which are matters of both personal and public record mr hannah himself was a thorough believer in the gold standard furthermore he intended that the republican convention should make an unequivocal declaration in favour of such a standard but for the time he kept his purpose to himself and bent his energies to the single task of securing delegates favourable to mckinley the western states were his chief concern new england was practically a negligible quantity and was in any case committed to the support of mr speaker reed the greatest of the middle states new york and pennsylvania had candidates of their own who stood no chance of nomination but whose appearance in the field would at the outset neutralize the influence of those states in the convention the west and the south were therefore the object of mr hannah's immediate solicitude both sections had a leaning towards the doctrine of free silver and hence mr mckinley must be represented for a while as a genuine friend of silver 
yet this point must not be too strongly pressed and the currency question must be treated as one of subsidiary interest and importance such is a brief outline of the situation as it appeared to mr hannah and his able campaign was conducted in accordance with its exigencies as early as january of eighteen ninety six the republican newspapers throughout the country began to display a remarkable enthusiasm for mr mckinley's nomination not however because of his past or present attitude towards the money question but because he was the exponent of high tariff duties and easy times the lean years of the cleveland administration were explained as wholly due to the repeal of the mckinley act of eighteen ninety voters have short memories and they had long since forgotten that the treasury deficits the lowered wages and the shutting down of mills and factories had begun during mr harrison's presidency all that they were permitted to remember was the fact that at least three million men were now out of work and that a democratic president had been in office for three years the days of harrison were lauded as an era of abundance and the election of mckinley on the tariff issue was declared to be the only way of bringing back that glorious period the old cry of bill mckinley and the mckinley bill was supplemented by the new and taking catchword mckinley and the full dinner pail someone described the ohio statesman as the advance agent of prosperity and this phrase went from mouth to mouth and was caught up by the newspapers never was a press campaign more skilfully conducted it seemed to reflect in the great republican strongholds a spontaneous demand for the nomination of mr mckinley yet the silver question would not down but everywhere distracted men's attention from the tariff cry the gold men in the east and the silver men in the west were equally clamorous to know just where the advance agent of prosperity himself stood when the ohio state convention met on march eleventh its pronouncement on the financial issue was eagerly awaited for surely mr mckinley's own state might be expected to give the watchword to his party throughout the land but mr hannah was too shrewd to show his hand just yet and so the convention adopted that sort of delphic utterance which the vocabulary of american politics expressively denominates a straddle the state platform said we contend for honest money for a currency of gold silver and paper that shall be as sound as the government and as untarnished as its honour to that end the ohio republicans favored bimetallism and demanded the use of both gold and silver as standard money end of chapter eleven part one